that particular anthem, uh, I think, is special for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, Helen reminded me that it was the first anthem the choir sang on my first Sunday as pastor here at St. Luke's back in July of 2010, uh, eight years ago. Uh, and so it's a, a fun hymn and a fun anthem and reminds me of a really special moment. It's amazing. Eight years have gone by uh, and um, uh, I'm still here and I'm excited to begin my ninth year of service. In church. <laughs> you know, pe people joke that uh, Methodists move too much and uh, I'm trying to prove them wrong. Um, and so I'm excited to be here. <laughs> for my ninth year, um, and so it's a special anthem. It's also special because the choir was apparently joking that it sounds kind of like a, well, I, I think of it as a, a sea shanty. I think um, a sea shanty, they called it a pirate song, um, but it's got kind of that, you know, that, that hi-ho kind of, you know, working together on a boat kind of feeling, you know, back and forth and back and forth, uh, which I think is great for today's focus of the church particularly because using the image on our stained glass window of the church as a ship. And so I'm going to focus a little bit on that, uh, but then talk about our gospel lesson as well. Uh, so let's, let's pause and pray once again uh, uh, together. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, so, when you go to preach about the church, the scriptures are full of different images and metaphors to describe the church. Now, a lot of them come from Paul's letters, and in there you see the church described as a body with Christ as our head. Um, you can find a passage uh, that talks about the church as a bride and Christ as the groom. Uh, you can find the image of the church as a household, a family of faith living together in a house with Jesus as the head of the household. Uh, and you can find the church described as a temple, uh, a beautiful temple built to stand the test of time with Christ as the cornerstone on which the temple is built. All of those are great images. All of those are great images. The one that we've settled on today, though, is that of the ship. The church as the ship of faith. And it really comes more from early church architecture than it does anything else. When early churches were being built, they had a tendency to be designed in a special way to look like a ship. Now, it seems odd to us today, but remember, in ancient Near Eastern ideas, the ship was the most technologically advanced piece of technology ever. You could get on a boat and sail across the world. You know, from Israel to Spain. It was the fastest form of travel to get on a ship. And it was powered by the wind. Never would the wind give up. Infinite and everlasting power. So a ship was the most advanced technological thing they could think of. And early church architecture began to be shaped and designed like a ship. It's even present in some of the terminology that we use. 
Uh, so now here in Methodist world, we call this whole thing the sanctuary. Uh, but if you visited a, a Roman Catholic church or Episcopal church, or even if you looked in some old language even before uh, us, you would hear references to the nave where the people sit. And that nave is the Latin word for ship. It's where we get the word navy, ship. The idea was we are not the passengers, we are the crew of God's ship. Because here's the thing, uh, in God's ship, there are no passengers, only crew, working together, serving together, singing our little sea shanties to encourage one another. And when someone gets tired, they go and sit and rest a bit while we take uh, turns. But no one gets simply a free ride. But here's the challenge. When we are working together from time to time, we might bump into each other. Or someone might notice that someone's not pulling their weight. If you live in close quarters for too many years, you might get on each other's nerves. Now, I know this doesn't happen at St. Luke's, but other people might get annoyed with one another. Some people might get the wrong idea or misunderstand or miscommunicate and start to harbor feelings of, of resentment. We may even get to the point where we're doing acts of sin. Things like, Things like being mean to each other, or gossiping about one another, or looking down on one another. Again, not at St. Luke's, other churches I've heard about, where people can get on each other's nerves and begin to act estranged. Jesus knows that it will be among the most difficult things for the church to do is to practice forgiveness. I love that Jesus, out of all the things he could talk about, uh, you know, I really would love for Jesus to have given a, a, a long sermon on the proper way to structure a church worship service, or the proper way to conduct church trustee meetings, or how much money should each church budget for the light bill. But Jesus doesn't teach on any of that. What Jesus chooses to teach the church to do is to practice forgiveness. Probably because he thought that would be the hardest thing, the hardest thing any of us can ever do, to forgive, particularly to forgive those who have done nothing to earn forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, he says this, If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out that fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. Now, of course, my translation that says member may be different from yours. Your translation may something more say something closer to the Greek, which is brother or sister. It's not just about the church as community or club, it's about the church as family. And Jesus says, if a member of your family sins against you, 
Go directly to them face to face. See, family members have a deeper bond than simply members of the same club. Family members stay together even when it gets tough. If you disagree with somebody in your neighborhood association, you just stop going to the meetings, or you go to next door, Fondren, next door, Bellhaven, next door, whatever your neighborhood app is, and you post about it. But we're not members of a neighborhood association or a club. We're family. And Jesus tells us to do something more difficult, and that's to talk face-to-face. Not over email, not over text message, not gossiping, but face-to-face. But then he knows that sometimes when we confront one another face-to-face, we won't see eye-to-eye. And so he says the next step is to go get some people with you. Now, this may be a difficult thing to understand, but Jesus doesn't say, go find two people that agree with you already and bring them on to your side. He says, go and find two other sisters and brothers and talk with each other. Because point of fact is, you may be a bit clouded on what's happening. And with the wisdom of two or three others, they may point out to you, hey, I think you're missing this part. I think you have some own issues that are contributing to this. But then if you've talked to the person one-on-one and you've brought a group together and it's still not achieving reconciliation, you're supposed to bring it in front of the whole church? Now, you may be thinking what I'm thinking. I would never do that. And I think Jesus wants us to take this seriously. Because here's the thing. If it's not important enough to bring in front of the whole church, maybe it's not important enough for you to get all bent out of shape about it. And I think that's something that we never realize in Jesus' teaching here. That sometimes what we are worked up about is not nearly as important as we think it is. However, I also think that Jesus wants us to take sin and disruption in the church seriously. Now, I grew up in a good southern family in which this is how we dealt with things uh, when they disrupted in the family. When a cousin said something about another cousin, or when an aunt said something about the sister, or when somebody forgot to bring something to something, we just swept it under the rug. Bless their heart. (laughs) That's just my family. I don't know about your family. But I think Jesus kind of predicted current, modern, southern gentility. Because not only does this teach us to have a proper perspective on what really counts and what really is important, it also teaches us to have a proper perspective on how to really deal with conflicts. 
not to sweep them under the rug or pretend they're not there. Because sin, for Jesus, is never a solitary matter. If someone is in a cycle of hurt and brokenness, whatever it is, it's not simply something that they can get by with on their own. I think one of the problems of the modern church life is we don't want to confront sin because we don't want to embarrass people, but we also don't want to do the hard work of walking with somebody who is in need, who is in a cycle of brokenness or hurt or pain. And so rather than deal with conflict, rather than help someone walk through their sin and out of it, and rather than admit that we too have things we need to work on, perhaps things in our own life that we need help with, rather than admit any of that, it's so much easier and nicer to sweep it away. Most churches, I think, would rather ignore conflict than deal with it out in the open. But I've found in my own life that simply ignoring problems never makes it go away. Now, here's the thing, though. If you've talked with someone and you've gotten wise counsel with someone else to make sure that you're seeing things right, if you've even brought it in front of the whole church, whether that whole church looks like you're a small group, you're Sunday school, or simply a larger group that says, I am struggling with this person, and I don't want to make it break our fellowship, and you've done all that, Jesus says the final step is to treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Which can sound harsh. Because for Jesus, as a good Jewish boy, Gentiles and tax collectors were outsiders. Gentiles were not of the ethnic faith that Jesus lived in. And tax collectors were those turncoats who abandoned their own people to go work for the hated Romans. And so at the end of this process of forgiveness, we're supposed to push them away, right? Makes sense. Someone doesn't see things your way, it's better for them not to be around anymore. But the problem with that thinking is, all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus eating with tax collectors. We see Jesus talking to Gentiles. We see Jesus healing people who didn't deserve it. We see Jesus loving the outsiders. Maybe at the end of the whole process, we're supposed to turn the people who have bugged us the most into the people we love the hardest. I think that is more challenging than anything else. 
to turn those who make us the most angry and instead love them like Jesus loved the Gentiles. To love them like Jesus loves tax collectors. Or to love them like Jesus loves us. And somewhere in the midst of it, we call it church. Church is not a collection of people who have it all together. Church is not a collection of people who agree about every single thing on every single issue. The church instead is a group of people who have recognized that they need forgiveness and have found it in Jesus. And a group of people who despite every other instinct try to practice that same forgiveness toward others. Church is messy when it's like that. But I think it's more genuine when we admit that. But before I wrap up, we have to turn to Peter's statement. Peter's always a good spokesman, oftentimes self-appointed. And he pipes up at the end and says, well, now, now Jesus, I've got just one question about this whole forgiveness thing. And it's a question you might have, it's a question I've had, is how often do we go through this game? Somebody sins against us or makes a mistake or, or, or causes a problem or ruckus in the church, and we forgive them, fine, yet great. How often, if they keep doing the same thing, how often? Now, Peter does something funny here. He asks the question, but he asks the question in such a way as to prove how smart he is. You ever have somebody like that in one of your classes? They ask the question knowing the answer. But here's the thing. Jesus, uh, or Peter rather, says, should we, uh, should we say seven times, Jesus? Because the old rabbinic tradition in Peter's day was that you can forgive a person three times. Rabbis would say, look, you forgive a person three times. After that, let him go. And Peter's being really generous. He's like, how about seven times? It's three times two plus one to grow on, right? Peter probably thought he was really generous and magnanimous. And Jesus says, no, Peter, no, no, no. Not seven times. Seventy-seven times. Now here's the thing. And it's why some of your translations may say seven times seventy. Because Jesus doesn't just pull this number out of thin air. Jesus uses a number that is found somewhere else in the Bible. It's found in Genesis chapter 4. I know you instantly remembered that chapter, right? I didn't either. I had to look it up. Genesis chapter 4, where Lamech, Lamech, the great, great, great grandson of Cain, remember Cain killed Abel, not a good family, right? Lamech, his great-great-great-grandson, in Genesis chapter 4, declares that if anyone harms his family, he will return that harm 77 times. Way back in Genesis 4. And so Jesus reaches back into 
the history of the Jewish people and says, we don't do vengeance 77 times. We do forgiveness 77 times. And another way to say that is, as often as we have to, we forgive. You see, while we live together on this ship of faith, we have to recognize that we don't own the ship. We're just the crew. And the captain wants us to forgive each other. When we make mistakes, the captain wants us to admit it and to offer remorse. And the captain also wants the rest of the crew to offer mercy and forgiveness. And those who wish to sail on this ship, that's what we do. We receive and extend forgiveness. And for those who want to keep count and to take revenge, they may not like it very much on this ship. But the destination we're sailing to is worth the journey. And for the rest of us who have come to believe that to whom much is forgiven, much forgiveness is required, you may want to ask yourself, how often should we be prepared to forgive? In my own life, this is how I've come to understand it. I'll stop forgiving others the day after I stop needing forgiveness for myself. On that day, I'll come to realize how much I've already been forgiven. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful for this ship, this church, this journey. And Lord, we recognize how often we make mistakes, how often we hurt one another, how often we use words to wound because we are hurt. Lord, we recognize how often we treat those closest to us even worse. How we treat members of our own family in ways that we would never treat strangers. Lord, we ask you to forgive us. And Lord, we ask for the humility to ask forgiveness for those whom we have wronged. Help us, Lord, to see. Help us to understand. Help us to hear when we have hurt others. And help us to trust that forgiveness leads to reconciliation. Help us, Lord, to practice what we preach and to trust that there is a better way than holding on to grudges or resentments or to anger.
Lord, we are so grateful that no matter what we have done, you stand ready to forgive. Help us to be a church that is known as a place where anyone can find forgiveness and where there's always room on this ship. And so, Lord, teach us to live like we believe, to live like we believe the words that your Son taught us to say. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.